Welcome to the Bioengineering Podcast. This podcast is currently intended to promote and increase transparency between current, future, and prospective bioengineering students and faculty. This podcast is not directly affiliated with the UC San Diego Department of Bioengineering. The following is a conversation with UC San Diego Bioengineering Department Chair and Professor Dr. Adam Angler. Okay, um, today we have Dr. Engler. Uh, Dr. Engler is a professor and uh, department chair of bioengineering here at UC San Diego. Um, he's also, uh, he also has an appointment at the uh, Sanford uh, Consortium uh, for Regenerative Medicine. Uh, Dr. Engler uh, did his PhD training at University of Pennsylvania, where he studied how the extracellular matrix stiffness uh, regu regulated stem cell fate. Uh, he did his postdoc at Princeton uh, at the Department of uh, Molecular Biology, and uh, as with many bioengineering faculty here at UCSD, Dr. Engler is uh, a recipient of many prestigious awards. So, uh, Dr. Engler, thanks again for being here. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, could you uh, talk about maybe your journey to UCSD and maybe the East Coast and the West Coast and, you know, where you hail from and how you ended up here? Great. Yeah, thanks. Um, this is, is going to be fun. I uh, grew up in Alabama, so very, very far from uh, San Diego. But uh, I, I grew up as a, a son of a, a faculty member. My, my dad is actually a former... Uh, professor of biochemistry. So I was one of those uh, kids that was always sort of drawn to the lab. Um, I can remember, you know, as early as high school, uh, coming into his research lab and helping him out with um, some experiments. A, a lot of the times it was um, uh, experiments set up for teacher training. So he had mm -hmm. a, a um, big focus of his, his summers were on something called bioteach which um, brought in high school students from around uh, Alabama to um, participate in research, much like our uh, research experience for undergraduate program, or REU, that I direct here at, at UCSD, um, brings in summer students for you know the, the same sort of training purposes. Um, it was a little weird when I would uh, participate in those in, in certain summers and uh, teachers from my own high school would show up <laughs> and and that was a little awkward when I was setting up the experiments that they were then going to learn how to do um, but uh, we you know got over that awkwardness and it was yeah. it was a lot of fun so I, I did that in high school I also did um, I, I worked at a, a children's science museum uh, in Birmingham Alabama called McWayne Center so that was a, a lot of fun. Uh, it made me really want to be a pediatrician, oh. um, which obviously didn't come to fruition because yeah. I'm uh, here today. Um, but uh, I was really drawn to biomedical engineering and uh, from an early age thought that that was a great way to transition into a, a medical career. So I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia to do a bachelor's degree in um, bioengineering there. They also call it bioengineering at, at UPenn. Um, and after spending a, a couple of semesters there, I realized that um, organic chemistry and I don't agree with each other, <laughs> uh, or at least at the time didn't. We do you know a fair amount of orgo stuff now. But uh, 
a combination of that and also getting into uh, research as an undergraduate really drew me to this idea of wanting to be in uh, an academic setting mm -hmm. to really try to make a difference, not so much on you know the day-to-day -day aspect of what a physician might do, but something a whole uh, something that's much more long-term. So you know, my lab today to bring things full circle, we have um, a number of uh, IRB protocols where mm -hmm. we're getting human samples from uh, the hospital. Um, just next week, we're getting two more patient biopsies um, from breast cancer patients. Uh, and, you know, we have a, a clinical trial looking at this device that we've built to see if it's a better diagnostic assay for breast cancer than the, the current um, standard of uh, care. So, you know, I, I think that my, my desire to work on projects like that is really sort of rooted in this idea that um, while I think the sort of day-to-day -day impact on any one individual's life is, is important, what I was really drawn to were, were medical discoveries where you could be impactful to many hundreds or uh, thousands or, or millions of folks, um, even if that takes many, many years or, right. or decades. Sure. Um, but eventually that uh, impact will, will be realized. So, um, you know, I, I worked in a, a research lab as an undergrad, was fortunate to stay at Penn actually for graduate school, yeah. uh, continue working in that lab, um, which maybe, you know, shortened the amount of time that I was in grad school, but, uh, so you were in the same lab for approximately like seven, eight. Yeah, it was, it years. was about seven years. Yeah, yeah. I started sort of as a, a sophomore, uh, just replied to an email from a grad student to a, at that time there weren't the same sorts of, uh, online resources that we have today, <laughs> Yeah. but, uh, it was a post on, uh, we used, a. Uh, text-only based uh, email server called Pine back in the, let's just say, the late 90s. <laughs> um, and and one of the things that Pine had was a messaging service, and someone just put out a message saying, hey, I'm interested in um, research, uh, and or I'm, I'm a grad student, I'm doing research in the Department of Bioengineering, and I'm interested in having undergraduate helpers Basically, they were data crunching yeah. um, for this person who was, at the time, putting out gigabytes worth of data um, from an AF, atomic force microscopy experiment. Mm -hmm. Gigabytes might not sound like a lot these days um, when you have very large files for you know, cell, uh, genome sequencing, mm -hmm. but uh, it was a lot then, and we used what was state-of-the-art at the time, zip disks, which yeah. are 100 megabyte files, so you could have a stack of 1,000 zip disks you know, for one experiment basically and it was uh crazy i ended up not working with that grad student because uh things didn't work out but there was sure. another one in, in the lab that um also needed some help with some uh, tissue culture experiments and one thing led to another and and i was um fortunate to work on a project that i got a first author paper basically the day that i started grad school Why? which was Why? um you know i think today still unheard of but it was yeah. it was a lot of fun um, and I just, you know, things kind of mushroomed from there. Um, really enjoyed grad school. At the end of, of grad school, you know, I, I faced this sort of dilemma. Uh, there is a good amount of biotech in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just think of Boston, but, right. you know, I, I want to give, you know, the Jersey, Southeast Pennsylvania 
area sort of their due. Johnson and Johnson has their headquarters there. Mm. Merck, GlaxoSmithKline um, are all big pharmaceutical companies there, and they have pretty big R and D um, operations. So I, I interviewed with a, a couple of places there. Uh, at the same time, was uh, uncertain and, and interviewed with a bunch of uh, postdocs as well. And uh, it just so happened that the the postdoc route sounded a whole lot more interesting to me. Um, it provided flexibility, and um, you know you could sort of choose what your research interests were, and, yeah. and you. Um, although I still had an advisor, and, and we you know sure. Um, would work through projects and, and what my interests were and what their expertise was and, and where was their synergy. Um, you know, I felt like I was really driving a lot of the um, interactions. Yeah. So uh, I, I, you know, spent two and a half ish years then at Princeton and, and uh, was fortunate along the way to, to have made a couple of really impactful discoveries about how the environment that surrounds cells can help dictate what the cells do. Um, and at the time, stem cells had just been discovered. Yeah. Um, and so we were realizing that uh, the environment for fully committed cells, so muscle, bone, fat, you know, th mm -hmm. those sorts of mature uh, cell lines that you can grow in the lab, um, were responsive to their microenvironment, but they had sort of a very limited capacity. Uh, it's not like they were trans-differentiating or becoming something else. And so we were, were sitting around the, the lab one evening because my advisor and I would just do that, you know, routinely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and he asked me, you know, why don't we, you know, he had just read this paper that it had come out in, in science a, a few years earlier um, about mesenchymal stem cells. Mm -hmm. And he said, these sound really weird. They don't, you know, they, they differentiate into a few lineages, but they themselves aren't committed. I wonder what they do, would do in these environments. So we, uh, there was no commercial vendor at the time. We had to drive down to Baltimore to get these cells from um, the company that was spun out from the lab that had um, identified these cells. And so we got some, brought them back to, to Philly and started playing around with them. And, you know, one thing leads to another, uh, and all of a sudden we're, we're publishing um, what ended up being a really impactful um, set of observations in, a, uh, in Cell. And it happened to be in the same paper, if you're familiar with induced pluripotent stem cells. Mm -hmm. um, I think we probably have the most cited issue of the journal Cell in their history, because um, it was our paper plus the, the Yamanaka paper on yeah. the discovery of induced pluripotent stem cells. Did you guys know that that was also happening at the same time? No, total coincidence. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years later, I had the pleasure of, of meeting um, Dr. Yamanaka and, and uh, uh, approached him and said, you'll never believe this, but we published in the same issue. And yeah. he had no idea who I was <laughs> and thought that I was some weird stalker, yeah. um, which was kind of funny to, to go through. But um, we eventually, you know, got along and, and uh, talked about our, you know, respective papers and, and the impact that they've had sort of on the field. So it's been um, a great journey ever since. And I think that, you know, UCSD is definitely a, an environment where you can, um, you know, take your own expertise and, and just absorb all the uh, experiences and, and expertise around you uh, and do things that you never thought you would work uh would do or work on problems that you never thought you would um never thought that we would 
really get involved in cancer and now half yeah. my lab works on cancer mechanobiology. Yeah. Um, I never thought that we would work with model organisms, but I have an R01 grant on um, just that topic uh, yeah. in part because someone uh, from uh, the Sanford Burnham Institute uh, came over and said, hey, we've got these flies. Um, we look at you know how the heart changes with age, but we have no good um, assays to look at their mechanical function mm. because of these unique challenges of the invertebrate system that they are. Yeah. Um, so it just so happens that at the same time, I was getting really frustrated by people in the uh, muscle uh, in the stem cell field, in particular with adult stem cells, talking about aging and how they would take these cells from uh, a donor, they would grow them in the lab for six months or maybe a year, mm -hmm. and then they would compare what those cells looked like at the end of their cell culture to what the cells looked like at the beginning. And they would yeah. say, this is, you know, we're, we're looking at cell culture uh, aging in a dish. Yeah. And I would say, that's not what you're doing at all. Yeah. You're looking at the accumulation of cell culture artifacts from the fact that you're growing these cells on plastic or glass right. for a year. Our bodies are not made up of plastic or glass. Sure. So all the changes that you're looking at are changes that resulted from the environment that they're growing grown in and not from any sort of actual aging. Right. So you should really look at model systems and that's why anyone who has uh, taken my 230B class, you know, will we'll sometimes talk about model organisms because, one, I really like them. Um, but, two, I think you can learn a lot from them that you can't necessarily learn from just cells grown on plastic. Yeah. So you believe in vivo versus in vitro is mightily significant to, way, to the way we understand sort of biology and mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean there there are many things that you can do with in vitro systems a lot of the students in my lab you know if they're listening um i i think that there's a tremendous value to sure. in vitro systems especially when you're trying to mimic specific components of an in vivo system you can do many reductionist experiments where you just look at one specific environmental property or cue that there's no way you could do that in vivo. Mm -hmm. um, so it has its its place in in science, but I would never say that it should be a substitute for some sort of fundamental concept like aging. Yeah. Hmm. But again, getting back to the the point about. Um, UCSD and how it yeah. sort of influences everyone. Um, I think those are just a, a, a couple of brief examples of how we've gotten into things that I never thought we would uh, as a result of the environment that we, we work in. Um, I think a lot of uh, folks at UCSD do a tremendous amount of uh, sequencing, whether it's single cell sequencing, bulk sequencing, RNA chip sequencing, um, ATAC sequencing, you know, you, you name it. Yeah. Um, we cover all those topics in 230B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, we do or did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, but I think that, you know, again, if I weren't at UCSD, I don't know that we would, as almost a default now, construct some sort of sequencing experiment if it weren't for the environment that we are in and sure. the, the wealth of resources at UCSD for 
that sort of technology. So um, I've had a lot of fun. It's been a great ride. Um, hope it continues. Yeah. So speaking of the environment in which we are in today, um, how so it finished your postdoc and then you just uh, took a flight over to the West Coast. Like, uh, is that uh, yeah? Is it that simple or? <laughs> um, for anyone that um, has seen all of the um, posters and flyers and emails that we send out when it comes time for faculty recruitment, yeah. which unfortunately coincides also with graduate student recruitment, so it just seems like a lot all at once. Right. Um, and it is. Um, but uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, effort and, and time that is spent by our staff uh, to put on the... the um, visits that we have for all these uh, candidates. And so I came out in mm -hmm. 2007 okay. and interviewed with, um, it was probably the, yeah, uh, like spring quarter of 2007, maybe the fall quarter of 2007, uh, no, winter quarter of 2007. Um, interviewed, you know, I had a, a great interaction with faculty. At the time, the department was probably only about 12 people. Um, we're wow. About 33. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, a very different atmosphere back then. Totally. Um, you know, but interviewed, we started discussing like what my needs would be to have a, a, a lab here and, and ways in which I, the support that I needed to be successful. And so yeah. we sort of came up with what that might look like. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. Sure. But, uh, but I started here in, in uh, July 1st of 2008. Um, I was on the second floor of PFBH. Okay. Um, and you pivoted to Sanford. Yeah, yeah. so that opportunity came up a, a couple of years later. Um, part of the funds that I, I had to start at my lab um, were related to CIRM, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Yeah. That was a really big thing back in the late 2000s. Um, there were a number of... Um, congressional uh, actions, let's call them, mm -hmm. and and uh, things done by um, President George W. Bush at the time, where stem cell research was being somewhat restricted. Um, there were concerns that the federal government was funding the creation of new stem cell lines that were destroying embryos and potentially, mm -hmm. you know, new human life. So. Uh, in response to that, California passed a proposition that created uh, it created a three billion dollar bond to start the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. So myself, uh, Dr. Chrisman, a number of others had funds that were supported by CIRM to spend on stem cell research and, and infrastructure, uh, and along with that, the university had uh, been. Uh, had acquired uh, funds from CIRM in partnership with uh, the Salk Institute. At the time, it was called the Burnham Institute, um, although it's now the Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute. Um, La Jolla Institute for Allergy and Immunology. Um, I'm, I'm leaving someone out, and I apologize. But, um, but they formed this consortium and said, you know, we should have a new building on campus or slightly off campus yeah. that supports stem cell research and provides a home um, for it. So uh, that decision was made right around the time I was, was joining UCSD. Um, it took a, a year or two for the, the grant to get approved, and then they, they built this building, which opened in 
I want to say January of 2012. Okay. And myself and Dr. Chrisman moved over there, uh, and we still today live on the first floor. Yeah. Um, with uh, great ocean views, a nice cafe, but most importantly, <laughs> a very great group of uh, stem cell investigators uh, and, and those that are focused on regenerative medicine, not just from bioengineering, yeah. uh, and we now have four faculty over there, but um, from across UCSD, and in fact, really across the Mesa, there are a number of labs from Sanford Vernon Prebist, from the Salk, yeah. um, La Jolla Institute. So yeah. it's it's a, a really good mix of folks. Right. And, and we've really enjoyed it, our time there. So that leads, you know, us into a, a, the next topic of conversation, which is, you know, the lab itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you've already touched upon sort of uh, your lab and the principles that encompass um, the lab. Uh, would you say that the lab uh, sort of at first piggybacked off what you were doing as a postdoc and PhD student, and and if so, and how has it um sort of uh, transcended today, uh, mm-hmm. many years later? Yeah. Um, absolutely. You know, you're uh, sort of beholden to your former mentors, and you know, ha- have a conversation about what are they going to work on, what are you going to mm-hmm. try to work on as an independent lab. Um, so I tried as best as I could to have those conversations with uh, my former mentors. And we just figured out, you know, what what are the experiments that, what are the, the questions that I was really interested in asking surrounding, you know, stem cells and the microenvironment uh, when I, I moved here. And so our first couple of papers were all related to those sorts of topics. Um, micropatterning was becoming a, a really big um, concept at the time. Um, so some of our initial papers were sort of focused around that as well. Um, and as I said, then you kind of get a reputation and, and people are um, interested in collaborating and they know sort of what your yeah. expertise is. And, yeah. and so you begin to sort of absorb expertise from other folks and, and create this lab environment that um, I hope is really welcoming and, and open. Yeah. Um, but that we also ask really good questions. I so. see. Cool. Um trying to think of uh, other topics that revolve around the lab so i mean do you, what do you um what do you think about the future applications of the research going on in the lab mm-hmm. and maybe also the practical applications and i guess mm-hmm. maybe some things are subject to nda or whatnot but if you yeah, wish no. to share um you know I, I think where i see our research interest going in the future um really i think builds on on two key ideas the first is complexity of our systems i think back when i started in 2008 we were sort of understandably naive in our interpretation and understanding and there were um many years where a lot of people thought that you could take cells differentiate them in the lab and inject them into animal models or you know eventually into patients and that they would actually do something therapeutic they they would engraft uh-huh. and develop into you know a cure for muscular dystrophy or things you know related to to those sorts of um, topics and unfortunately a lot of the stem cell therapies just didn't come to fruition the mm-hmm. cells don't engraft like we want them to right they don't regenerate the tissue as we thought they did there is still certainly some value for the cytokines that they can produce and the signals that they can um, engender in in other cells but the sort of de novo 
um, regeneration is probably not something, um, at least in our lifetime, that we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, there are still a lot of um, companies and um, less than reputable individuals that are purporting, you know, wonderful things that come about from stem cells and um, unfortunately are injecting them into perhaps naive patients um, yeah. uh, in, that are, are not, you know, fully aware of uh, where the science is right now. But that being said, you know, I, I think the, the future is still really bright for um, a lot of applications with stem cells in terms of understanding diseases uh, and using them to model diseases in a dish. There are many um, diseases that we don't yet have a really good understanding of that uh, stem cells provide a really good vehicle to, uh, in which to study them. So I'm talking about um, genetic diseases mm-hmm. that uh, just don't simply, the, the genetic structures don't exist in um, lower vertebrates. Uh, for example, lo- a lot of long non-coding RNAs only exist in primates. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of um, very specific um, multigenic disease models only exist in primates. Um, so we have one, one graduate student who's looking at, you know, what is the sort of what I call mutation math. If you have um, a lot of, if you have a single homozygous mutation, chances are there's going to be some obvious phenotype. Mm-hmm. The cells are really messed up. The Maybe it's even embryonic lethal. Mm-hmm. But if you have a lot of heterozygous mutations, and we all carry around millions of them, sure. but the vast, vast majority of them are silent. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you can have this detrimental situation arise where the right heterozygous mutations co-segregate in someone, and then that patient develops heart disease yeah. prematurely. Uh, so why does that happen? And then what caused it? Because sometimes, and we've studied several patient families where not everyone, everyone that has heart disease has the mutations, you know, these multiple heterozygous mutations, but not everyone who has these multiple heterozygous mutations has heart disease. So was there some sort of environmental effect that caused the people that did develop heart disease to develop it? And that environmental effect wasn't present in someone else that didn't, or, you know, another family member. So those sorts of really complicated questions, I think, are really sort of top of mind when it comes to um, where is the science really leading us? Um, Because I think, you know, gone is the era of the the simple homozygous mutation, Mm -hmm. and we know exactly, you know, what's going to come about from that. Um, I think we've, we've found a lot of the vast, vast majority of them. And now the question is, well, what happens in these really complicated situations? Um, and I think the microenvironment to bring things full circle really plays a, a critical role, um, whether it's heart disease or, or, or cancer too. I mean, the, the same sorts of um, questions are, are related to that. And, and it's wonderful to have conversations when I go over to the cancer center um, to talk to folks about the mutations that we might study in the context of cardiovascular disease. And they say, oh my gosh, we're doing the same thing in prostate. What yeah. is going on? Why are these same long non-coding RNAs having the same effect in prostate cancer that they are in heart disease? Um, so those are some really cool conversations that we've been having lately. That's really cool. I mean, it's cool that um, the questions that you're asking are are 
that you know, others are asking as well, per, perhaps in a different context of, uh, of, of bioengineering. So yeah. I think that's really cool. And thank you for sharing uh, your insights. So we can um, end the conversation on more of a, some lighthearted topics. Sure. Um, I wasn't able to procure a, a list of or, or, or any details on what you like to do for fun, although I do know based off of prior experiences that you are an Eagles fan. So, oh, yeah. I mean, congrats on the Eagles going to the Super Bowl. That was a, a big win. I feel like the NFL. Fly, Eagles, fly. Yes. I feel like the NFL has this uh, cyclical thing where every five years uh, the Eagles are just thrust back into uh, prominence because five years ago, you know, they won the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, well, you know, there I, th- I think you might have just cursed us because uh, you know I, I lived in Philadelphia for a, a long time as an undergraduate uh, student then as a, a graduate student when I was a postdoc at Princeton um, we also still lived in Philadelphia in, yeah. in part because um, my wife and I had careers that were in sort of opposite geographical parts of, of the city mm-hmm. and and she worked um, south of Philadelphia and, and so then I was doing my postdoc um, north in, in Princeton. Um, so no one really lives in Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah. If, if, I mean, it's a wonderful community. Um, it's a great place if you have a family sure. to, to live. Um, you know, as a, a 20 something postdoc, um, there weren't a lot of opportunities for me to, you know, hang around there. Yeah. Um, although shout out to Hoagie Haven. Um, definitely a good place to go if you're ever in, in Princeton. Um, I have no stock in them. They're just, they make great subs. Well, that's good to know. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it's it's right there on uh, Nassau Street. Um, yeah. So you know, I, I got a chance to to live the Philadelphia sports scene for more than a decade. Um, in that time, they won zero championships across <laughs> every single major sports team. Uh, you know, they famously had not had a winning team since any winning team since 1983. Um, so in 2001, the Sixers, their basketball team, uh, yeah. um, they were beaten soundly by the Lakers. Shaq and Kobe, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was disappointing. Uh, and then no team was, was really good until 2008. We were leaving the city. Um, there were sort of hints that the, that the Phillies, their baseball team, were going to be pretty good. And they had Ryan Howard and and um, uh, Rollins. Um, oh, I'm forgetting his first name, um, but uh, you know they they had this uh, remarkable team, and we thought, oh, you know, if this is their year, and we're leaving, <laughs> how mad are we going to be? Yeah. And sure enough, we come out to the West Coast. Um, love, you know, setting up our, our lives here in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a couple of weddings and, and reasons to get back to the East Coast. And so we'd always try to catch a Phillies game. Uh, but wouldn't you know it, that was the year that they won the World Series. Yeah. And so from 1983 to 2008, <laughs> there were zero major sports championships there. Wow. And we leave literally three months before they win and you know the riots in the streets of philadelphia yeah, um, yeah. are very impressive yeah. if you uh ever have the occasion to go there some evening when they win yeah um it's it's really impressive yeah um you know win or lose there's going to be a great party yeah um, sure and it's just the atmosphere might be a little bit different if they they win or lose um so yeah you know we we certainly miss our time uh, there but uh from a sports perspective the padres are uh 
Yeah. Great. We're season ticket holders. Oh, uh, nice. My, and, you know, you, you ask about lab culture. You know, yeah. one of the things that um, I love to do is just um, our lab goes out a lot. You know, we oh, that's awesome. try, you know, various food places. We're trying to get to a place in Barrio Logan soon. But, you know, things are just conspiring against us. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I, I really like to do is we'll, we'll go to, you know, uh, San Diego Goals games. That's we'll cool. We'll go to the, the um, Padres um uh yeah so we, we try to uh, get around and, and have fun and um i'm a season ticket holder for the padres now right. so we we go um to way too many games <laughs> i probably write one fewer grants every year as a result of <laughs> of uh my obsession with the padres um have way too many jerseys so would, yeah. would you say you're so. more obsessed with the padres or the eagles oh uh, well so fortunately we're, we're talking major league baseball versus the national football league. Yeah. So, that's a good thing. Yeah. So they're, they're two different. Um, what, what killed me was this past year when the Padres were like playing the Phillies. The Phillies. <laughs> yeah. And so um, we, we did have tickets to one of the games in San Diego and I, I had to wear my Phillies championship t-shirt underneath my San Diego Padres Jersey. There we go. Um, <laughs> no one really noticed, which sure. was a good thing. Um, but I do have some mixed loyalties there and it's, it, uh, it was also then tough to see them not be successful. Yeah. Um, if push comes to shove, definitely Padres first though. Yeah. Um, so, oh, we need to get you a, uh, half Phillies, half Padres. Oh yeah. I've, I've seen, together. seen, uh, versions of that, but, uh, yeah. Otherwise, you know, we, um, my lab does a lot of outdoor th- things too. There's some rock climbing folks there. So nice. they, they will go to the rock climbing gyms and um but we have a, a five-year-old and a 12-year-old nice so uh you know they're at that awkward stage where they hate each other <laughs> oh, okay um and uh are just into different stuff but sure um, you know we love uh the zoo so the lab will go to the zoo sometimes um our ru program goes to the zoo um love that um sea world is another big place sure um Mostly the roller coasters, but also you know, some of the um, animal exhibits and, and all their you know mission with rescuing animals. That, yeah. that really um, goes over well with our kids. Um, Legoland, all that stuff. If yeah. You, if you need free passes, um, you know, just ask. Uh, we we probably get a bunch every year. So. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. You know, for Legoland, I don't think I can just walk in uh, on my own anymore. <laughs> Uh, it it does help when you've got you know a couple of kids in tow yeah um it it makes it a little (laughs) more obvious yeah well um we we can wrap it up here uh but before we wrap it up uh do you have any sort of parting words to the listening uh to the listening about folks listening or the bioengineering community ucsd bioengineering community you know yeah you know um i've had the pleasure of serving as department chair now for 13 months exactly today um I, I would say, you know, I, I hope that the department, uh, that everyone feels welcome and uh, accepted in the department, whatever your background is, um, whatever, you know, race, creed, national origin, sexual orientation, I, I want people to feel really welcome. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I'll pledge, and, and actually in 30 minutes I have office hours that anyone is welcome to come, come to. Right. Um, you know, but I, I think that transparency and, and welcoming is, is a, a really big, uh, are, are two really big uh, uh, things for, my, for me. And I think that um, people do their, their best science when they are uh, 
uh, when they feel welcome, when totally. they, they feel appreciated. Totally. Um, and I want um, all students to feel that. So, you know, that's my pledge to everyone is um, just uh, let me know if whatever your situation is and, and we'll get it solved um, as best as we can. So, um, yeah, uh, just uh, stop by. Don't be a stranger. Yeah. And um, I'm always happy to chat and, and try to solve. I, I can't promise that I have all the answers or that I'll be able to fix every problem, but I want to at least try. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that's it, folks. Thank you so much, Dr. Angler. Yeah, this has been fun.